Welcome into another edition of the Nosebleeds podcast presented by WFUV Sports. Emmanuel Barbari in our WFUV Roseville studios. Jimmy Sullivan, our Mets beat reporter, kind enough to join us on the phone. And Jimmy was just over at City Field. There's plenty to get into this week, but we'll start here where the Mets are renaming the ballpark's address to 41 Seaver Way. Of course, in honor of legendary pitcher Tom Seaver, who won't be able to attend this weekend's 1969 Mets rendition festivities, suffering from dementia currently. Jimmy, fill us in on that. Seems like a very nice tribute. Yeah, it was really uh, it was really cool. You know, they had, obviously, all the dignitaries there. Uh, friend Jeff Wilpon, obviously, were there. Uh, Howie Rose emceed the ceremony. He took the uh, day off today from the Mets. They're playing in Philadelphia, but Howie was kind enough to come back to New York to emcee the ceremony. It was really nice. They had a bunch of the uh, 69 players there as well, Jerry Grody, uh, Ron Swoboda, Cleon Jones came as well. They got a really nice hand, a really nice reception when they came in. So it was really good to see uh, those guys. And the ballpark, it's now official, uh, 41 Seaver Way. It's no longer on 126th Street. So maybe that's a little sad, but it is 41 Seaver Way now. There's a big uh, placard, a sign over the Seaver Gate as well, signifying as such. So it's really nice. The, the one shame of it is obviously that uh, him – and his wife couldn't be there to see it. The Mets said that they would send the footage of the ceremony to them, which is nice, but obviously you would like it uh, for the person that's being honored if, if he could see it. But unfortunately, with his current health situation, he couldn't come out from California to be there. But it was a, a really well done and, and nice ceremony. On what wound up being a really hot day, but they actually they lucked out. They found the one spot in the shade. They conducted the ceremony, and it was a good time. Good stuff, and Grote will join us this weekend on one-on-one New York's longest-running sports call-in show. Swoboda joined us the other week, so we're kind of continuing that trend of bringing on some of the 1969 Mets who were part of that special year and talking to them about what it was like and what a winning atmosphere was like. The Mets, will get into plenty of what's gone on lately, have sort of lacked that, but it should be a nice little break this weekend, Jimmy, uh, to take a step back, honor the 1969 Mets on its 50th anniversary. You certainly hope so. And, you know, with everything that's that's gone on with the Mets this week, um, from the distractions on Sunday to the less-than-optimal play on the field, um, having something like what they're going to have on Saturday where they bring the at least most of the living members of the 69 team back. Nolan Ryan, unfortunately, couldn't make it. Uh, he announced that a couple weeks ago. But that would be nice to kind of bring all the fans together because this is a fan base that, I think it's very much on edge right now with how the team right. has played and the expectations coming into this year. And the team just hasn't come through, but this can be something to kind of bring everyone together, at least for a weekend, to sort of take the heat off of some of that. Now, if they don't start playing well, obviously not going to last very long, but might be a welcome distraction for a team that really has had a lot of distractions that have not been good, and this could be one that maybe actually helps them a little bit, you hope. Well, we are in late June, and there are only a couple more hours left as we're recording this podcast to vote for All-Stars, so we're going to get into the All-Star selections later on in the show. We can get to the Yankees later because they just continue to roll, and they're obviously showing something we knew for about two months on this podcast, that they're about a starting pitcher away from really being the team to beat in baseball right now. The Mets, on the other hand, have had a lot going on this week, and there's a lot to dissect, as Jimmy was alluding to, including the near altercation. And I guess you could call it an altercation, just didn't get physical, even though Jason Vargas probably wanted it to on Sunday between Tim Healy of Newsday and a struggling Mets clubhouse. And that 
stemmed with Mickey Calloway uh, shouting multiple expletives at the reporter who simply said, see you tomorrow, Mickey, from all accounts. Jimmy, this is uh, what appears to me and not being around the team every day as a manager who's feeling the heat, knows that the team has not lived up to expectations this year, knows that his butt is on the line, and he just lost it over something that he ultimately needs to keep his cool on in New York. Well, I, I think, you know, if you look at what happened that day, you know, that was a really big game for the Mets. Was. Um, if they would have won that game. They would have been within two games of 500 going into Philly against the team that coming into this series had lost seven in a row. Uh, the conversation would have been totally different. So he leaves Seth Lugo in. Uh, he leaves Edwin Diaz in the bullpen. Obviously, we've seen in the past how that usually works out, and Seth Lugo just didn't have his A-plus stuff, admitted to such after the game, gives up a three-run homer to Javi Baez. After the game, of course, you probably saw the postgame, Mickey gets just peppered with questions on why didn't you take Seth Lugo out, what was the decision-making, and, and he was pretty testy. He was probably, even before that altercation in the, in the postgame press conference, he was about as testy as I've seen him in two years as the Mets manager. Um, but you're absolutely right. You know, he's felt the heat really since opening day this year. Last year's team, the expectations were kind of a little lower. This year's team, with all the acquisitions, Diaz and Cano, chief among them, and the other ones as well, and Brody, Van Wagenen saying, come get us at, at the press conference, which was just one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> there's just a lot of pressure on Mickey Calloway right now, and that finally got to him. And... I, I, what I think happened there and why I think he reacted so strongly was, if you remember about a month ago, Brody Van Wagenen had that press conference where he said, Mickey Calloway is my manager and he's our manager for the foreseeable future. But he didn't say what the foreseeable future meant. Correct. So really, things have kind of gone day-to-day with the Mets. And I think somebody who's under that everyday strain, looking over their shoulder, am I going to get fired if I do this wrong, could hear something like, oh, see you tomorrow. As, as a slight, as uh, sarcasm, if you will. And I think Mickey was just tired of hearing it, and Tim Healy could have said just about anything in that spot, and Mickey Calloway would have blown up. And, and the problem that I have now is that, you know, this happened, and it was so inexcusable, and Jason Vargas, I thought in particular, uh, did ridiculously in the situation, going after Tim Healy, threatening to knock him out, which was absurd. But I, I just think... Not only was that bad, but also the way the Mets handled it afterwards with Mickey Calloway. Oh, yeah. The first time, not apologizing, and then the second time he comes back and he says, well, yeah, I got some feedback, and I just want you guys to know I did apologize to Tim on the phone. Uh, that was ridiculous, and then Jason Vargas didn't apologize at all. And even last night, uh, Jason Vargas got up in front of the media and said, well, my side of the story isn't really out there. And, Jimmy, so that's I what just, that's the most ridiculous sense. part of this whole situation to me is not only Mickey Calloway blowing up on a reporter, we know that managers in the past have taken a similar approach where all of a sudden they'll lose their cool over the course of an 162-game schedule. You wouldn't expect it from Calloway, who's normally very mild-tempered and a cool yep. customer when it comes to the media. But Jason Vargas getting himself involved. And Vargas seems to stick with the premise that we have not heard all of the details of the situation, which is hard to buy when you heard some of the quotes that were coming out of Vargas's mouth when he was about to physically assault the reporter. And he's stuck to his guns. He did not apologize last night. He did not apologize when everyone came together and tried to get everything behind them on Monday. Vargas 
his role in this situation is the most baffling to me because although Mickey Calloway called two pressers and made a fool out of himself on Monday, he ended up apologizing. Brody Van Wagenen apologized. Jeff Wilpon even apologized for the organization and said they don't condone that behavior. Jason Vargas and all this, although he's pitched well of late, has made himself look really, really poor in this situation. Yeah, he really has. And I think, too, you know, if his side of the story warranted him going after Tim Healy and threatening to knock him out, I mean, that's a really severe thing. (laughs) Don't you think it would have come out by now? You know, don't you think we would have heard something about it? There would have been a leak. Where, yeah, there would have been some kind of leak. And some reporter might have gone rogue because, you know, let's be real. I mean, the media, they're going to stick up for their guys, which obviously makes sense. But no one has given any indication that Tim Healy did anything untoward other than telling Mickey Calloway he would see him tomorrow, which is a statement of fact. So it just it doesn't make any sense to me. And I thought, and you probably saw this too, Gary Cohen in early in the game last night um, gave about two or maybe two and a half minutes about the whole Vargas situation. Beautifully said, by the way. Beautifully, Beautifully said. said um, you, couldn't have, you couldn't have said it better. I mean, it was just, it was really just, well said, and and I thought he hit the nail on the head. He said, look, it leaves a stain on the organization, but not only that, it leaves a stain on the organization, but it also gives license to the next person to go ahead and do it, especially when you consider how light the repercussions were, really. I mean, a $10,000 fine, which to Jason Vargas, I think, was one-tenth of one percent of his 2019 salary. I mean, that's just not going to hurt him. He's not going to feel like, ooh, I, I need to learn from this. So it's just a baffling situation that the Mets made even worse by their terrible PR job in handling it, really from Callaway and Vargas's point of view. Uh, and it didn't need to get to this, and yet the Mets just can't seem to put it behind them. And now they're looking down the barrel at potentially being swept by a Phillies team who had been playing horrific baseball up until this point. They had been playing horrifically, and it seems like the perfect – uh, rebound for any of these teams is playing the New York Mets. And you mentioned back to the weekend against the Cubs. That was a real opportunity for the Mets to sort of change the narrative and kind of turn this into a positive road trip. They had a chance to at least split the series, maybe even win it. And they ultimately lose that Sunday game, which was a big game in their season, as you mentioned. Now they've lost the first couple of games against the Phillies. And things are really trending downward. Now you're approaching the 10 games under 500 mark, which in my opinion is the point in the season. With all the mess, with all the side struggle for the New York Mets, their performance on the field just has not been it this year. And 10 games under 500, I think, is a litmus test where, man, this season has gotten away from you. I think that's a good litmus test. Another one that I use is how far back are you in the division? Because that might not be the best indication of how good you are, but it's a great indication of where you are. And the Mets are 10 games back of the Braves, who have been playing really well of late, who have all the looks of a team that might run away and hide with the division since they brought up Austin Riley and now they signed Dallas Keuchel for their rotation. And the Mets, you look at it, they're, they're only two teams worse than the Mets in the National League. It's crazy. San Francisco and Miami, both of whom, neither of whom, excuse me, we thought were going to be good. And the Mets put all these expectations on themselves. We're going to win now. We're going to win in the future. We're going all in. Come get us. And they're on pace right now because last night was their 81st game. They're on pace to actually be uh, three games worse than they were last year with all the additions, with all the moves they made, with all the talk and the bravado. 
And it just seems like with the Mets, uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And to be honest with you, you know, even with everything they did in the offseason, this team's just not that good. It's a matter of good players, you're right. It it is a matter of good players. The bullpen is awful. Robinson Cano looks like he's shot. I mean, he hasn't been healthy in fairness, but he's only hitting 220, and they're running him out there to hit third every night. And, you know, Wilson Ramos has been pretty good, but he's not good defensively, and that's hurt the Mets. And this rotation that was supposed to be really good has only been okay. And when your rotation's supposed to carry you, okay really isn't going to do it. So it's a team that not only are they bad this year, I think, too, I, I have a hard time seeing how they get better for next year and beyond because they've really hamstrung themselves with some of these moves they've made, particularly the Cano trade. And I just don't know how this team kind of puts it back together, especially with a rookie GM and and seemingly a limited budget. And you know what's disappointing about this Mets team, Jimmy, and I think you can agree, is that putting the bullpen aside, we know Brody Van Wagenen did an awful job at addressing a serious need for this team that's going on four or five years now of not having viable options out there. He did a bad job with that, and he did a bad job with plenty of his offseason moves, but... The starting rotation, on the whole, although some underperformance from guys like Zach Wheeler and Noah Syndergaard, has stayed healthy. And starting pitching depth is something the Mets did not address in the offseason. And they have gotten lucky in that regard that everyone has stayed healthy. There have been no significant blows to that rotation. DeGrom has rounded into form. Vargas has had a very, very nice stretch since his disastrous start to the season. And they have pieces on offense. Pete Alonso is an all-star. He's having one of the best rookie years of all time, if not the best. Jeff McNeil is the real deal. Dominic Smith has been great. J.D. Davis was a good pickup. These are guys who are good bedrocks for this team, and if you had a couple more pieces clicking, this offense would be uh, very potent, especially compared to some of them that are taking the field on a daily basis in this league. So it's pretty crazy to think that the Mets, if utilized correctly in terms of their assets – could probably be in a much better spot right now, but some of those moves are really, really backfiring on Van Wagenen, who's clearly uh, no no fit for this job. Yeah, and we talked about them being as bad as they are, but they've been ahead in the majority of the games they've played this year, and not early either. They've been ahead in the sixth and seventh inning and later and just haven't been able to keep the lead. And, and that's what's really frustrating about it, because if you feel like, they went out and say, a guy I wanted in the offseason, he hasn't been great for the Cardinals, but maybe get a guy like an Andrew Miller. He could be like your stopper. Mickey Callaway had him in Cleveland. He was really good. Mickey Callaway left Cleveland. He wasn't as good last year. Maybe reuniting those two. It just seemed to make too much sense, and the Mets didn't pull the trigger. They instead go out and get Jerry's Familia. And the other thing that I find funny is that Jerry's Familia is getting three years, $30 million. The Yankees, the team you cover, paid Adam Adovino three years, $27 million. And clearly getting much better value are the Yankees than, than the Mets with Jerry's Familia, who hasn't stayed that healthy, and when he has been active, he hasn't been good. So this bullpen's just a total mess, because after once you get past Lugo and Gazelman and Diaz, you, what are you looking at? You're looking at Steven Nagosik, Drew Gagno, oh. Brooks Pounders. That's not going to get it done. No, yeah, and, and it's, it's the same deal every night, Jimmy. As you've been watching, it's the yeah, same yeah. deal every night. They have the lead going into the fourth or fifth inning almost every night, and either the starter can't get deep into the game or they have a big lead late, whether it's four or five runs or even two, three runs, and those should be wins day after day. And it's the same story whenever this team loses a baseball game. They don't only lose it. 
but it's a huge gut punch. And if you have to give one thing to this offense, very resilient all year, coming back and putting up those runs, but it's a it's a crushing blow. It's those type of blows you can endure throughout the course of a season, and it happens almost every night for them. It, it really does. And I, we were talking about Gary Cohen before. He had the best line to, to close out the broadcast last night. You know, he hit the nail on the head. He said the Mets, once again, unable to outscore their bullpen. And really, <laughs> it's, that's what they have to do. they got to go out there and put up six, seven runs and get ahead by a wide margin every night almost. Because when Lugo isn't available, then it gets really tough for them. And Lugo's been very up and down his last couple times out. So it, it gets tough, and you don't have a lot of options. And, and I will say this, and I'm not defending Mickey Calloway. I don't think he's a good manager. I don't think he's cut out for it. I think this has much more to do with, with Brody Van Wagenen and the failed moves in the offseason and everything that's gone wrong over there than it's had to do with Mickey Calloway. As bad a manager as he is, and he has not been good, but I think this has more to do with the front office having a very flawed construction of this roster and leaving themselves um, vulnerable in spots where other teams fortified and, and got even stronger. The Mets, the Mets just didn't do that. So I pin more of this on Brody Van Wagenen than I do on Mickey Callaway. But let's be real, we all know who the fall guy is going to be at the end of the year. Yeah, and it's easy to pick the manager. And Mickey Callaway's done a less than stellar job with this team for two years now. But you're right, it's the roster construction. And I was talking about this with a friend of mine the other day. A lot of people love to blame the ownership. And I'm all for taking jabs at the Wilpons for not constructing the front office well, for not giving the resources to go out and get the big fish in free agency. But what it comes down to is the Mets have about an $150 million payroll and it's not spent in the right ways. If Bloom from over in Tampa Bay got the job and you gave him $150 million to work with, I'm sure he could put a championship roster on the field. So it really comes down to what resources do you have and how are you spending them? And I think the comparison to the Yankees and bringing in LeMahieu and Adovino versus Lowry and Familia for the Mets, when the Yankees spent less money to get those two players... I think is the perfect comparison. They're just not using their resources well. And I think we can agree that's what really puts a bow on this season. If the Mets end up with 70 to 75 wins, they did not construct the roster well with the resources that were made available. And in total fairness, I mean, there are some things that when these trades were made, you probably couldn't have foreseen. So, for example, I don't think anyone foresaw Jerry Familia being this bad. Could you see him maybe being up and down? Of course. But not a 7.81 ERA. You're just, right. You could not have foreseen that in any scenario. Uh, you couldn't have foreseen Robinson Cano hitting 220 when he's been a career 300 hitter. You just couldn't have foreseen that. But the problem is you put a front office in place where, yeah, they do have a payroll of 150, $155 million, But you also have to remember the insurance to Cespedes and the insurance to Wright really inflates that number. So really you're looking at about $125 million to work with which is not awful, but, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not great. It's not the Yankees' budget or the Dodgers' budget or any of these other big market teams, and that's not excusable to me, especially when the Wilpons hide behind the insurance to say, oh, we have a $155 million payroll. Well, no, you don't. It's really like 115 or 120 So that's, that's the problem that I have with the Wilpons. But like you said, plenty of GMs and front offices – have built really good rosters on really low budgets. I mean, look at Tampa Bay. I mean, that's a team that's probably going to go to the playoffs this year on a budget that's one of the lowest in all of baseball. 
And the Mets have probably, I don't know what the exact math is, but I'd say about double that to spend. And they're, they're going to be miles behind an organization like the Rays because they don't know how to evaluate players both on their own team and other teams. And it's, it's really hamstrung them as an organization for really for a very long time, but especially this year with Bertie Van Wagenen and, and the moves he made, none of which I think have worked the way they intended them to. Nothing is perfect with this organization right now, and you can pick at the ownership in ways. You can pick a lot at Brody Van Wagenen. You can pick at the manager and just the talent overall on the field. Let's flip it over to the Yankees. Um, Got to get to them. They have been on quite the roll. They just completed a 9-1 and homestand against the Rays, who they swept, against the Astros, who granted are a little bit injured right now, but they're still the Houston Astros. They're still a formidable opponent, and they were able to take three out of four and then they go and play the Blue Jays. Not a perfect series by any stretch for the Yankees, but they are just finding ways to win, evidenced by Wednesday's game where they fall behind 5-0, a terrible start from James Paxton. The offense is just too good right now. The lineup, 1-9, through nine, they've created this kind of death row of power hitters, and they're able to take down the Blue Jays walk-off fashion with Glaber Torres. Good pitching on the whole throughout the homestand, which wasn't the case on the previous road trip. And now the Yankees are a season-high 24 games over 500. They've opened up a seven-game lead on the Tampa Bay Rays in the AL East, even though they entered this homestand only up by half a game, and the Red Sox are 10 back on the loss side entering this series this weekend in London. Jimmy, it's just crazy what the Yankees have been able to accomplish, even given the pitching woes and the starting rotation. This bullpen has been lethal, and really the guy that sticks out to you lately is DJ LeMahieu, is basically a shoo-in for the second-base starting job at the All-Star game. He is 13 for his last 19, I believe, with four home runs. And this guy just does not know how to not get a hit. It's ridiculous, this lineup, what it's been able to accomplish. And the Yankees right now are probably a pitcher away from, they could say, come get us at that point. <laughs> you know, I think I, I think it was you who tweeted this out, but it might have been somebody else. But I am all in on DJ LeMayhew MVP candidate. Absolutely. I agree. 100%. <laughs> I, I think I mean he's up there in all of the statistical categories except except power where he's a little lacking but still you know he's just been such an impressive pickup and this is a guy that the narrative on him coming to New York was well he was a product of Colorado ball flies out of there all the batting average basically any hitting statistic you look at in Colorado is higher and he comes to the Yankees and. Picks up right where he's left off. Just so impressive. Uh, he's a guy I love. He's just such a, a smart hitter. Uh, I mean, I get to watch covering the Mets, Jeff McNeil. He's just a lot like Jeff McNeil. He just puts that the ball, puts it in play, really smart. And that's the type of hitter that you need in that Yankees lineup to an extent. Because you do. Because you've got all the power hitters and you've got all these guys. But it can get a little bit feast or famine when you put all those guys back to back. LeMahieu's not that at all. He's really consistent. Just a really impressive hitter. And that type of move shows you the Yankees' front office and how good of a job it has done in building this roster. That's a guy they got for one year. Uh, weren't even sure they were going to start him every day. Uh, now they kind of have to because of the Andujar injury. But he's just such an impressive hitter. He's so smart. You can't say enough about the guy. And uh, when I do this All-Star Game ballot a little later on today when I get home, uh, he – I would be very surprised if he was not on it. He's just—he's such an impressive hitter. He's one of the best hitters in the in the league. 
And you were mentioning the power. That wasn't necessarily up to par with everyone else. He does lead the league in hitting, 336 in the American League. The power has come around of late. He's up to 12 homers on the year, OPS of 906. You're not going to compare that to a Mike Trout or anyone of that nature. But he certainly will be in the MVP discussion if this keeps up. And the OPS now above 900 certainly puts him in that conversation. He's already worth 3.8 wins this season in terms of his war. So, yeah, you're looking at maybe on pace for an 8-win season from DJ LeMahieu. That is pretty, that's pretty absurd for a guy the Yankees expected to be a super utility guy for this team. And... He's just a professional hitter. There's nothing else to say. And it, it's funny, Brian Cashman was saying in an interview, I think on the fan the other week, that him and the Tampa Bay front office always joke back and forth because they have similar ways of evaluating talent. Tampa doesn't necessarily have the resources that the Yankees do, but they have a similar knack for finding the right player. And Tampa, the GM texted him in the offseason and said, man, like, that's a great move. You just got LeMahieu. We wanted him. And now look what's happened. It seems they both pinpointed the right parts of LeMahieu's game. Yeah, I mean, hearing that story, I'm kind of reminded there was this, I think it was Young Jeezy said it. He said, real recognize real. So when you get a text <laughs> from a Tampa Bay front office member telling you you made a good move, chances are you probably made a good move. And uh, you got to be really happy with, with a move like that. But also, too, I mean, you look around at the rest of this roster. I mean, the Adovino move just blows my mind that they were able to get him for that rate because, you know, he's been awesome. And the bullpen, you bring it back from last year. And they did just enough. Still need a starter, obviously. I think you said that earlier. So they're probably going to trade for somebody. Not exactly sure who. My guess is Marcus Stroman, but I, I, I'm not 100% sure on that. But it's just so impressive how they, they build their roster. And it, it's basically like... It's sort of like what the Red Sox did in the mid-2000s, where it was it was money ball with money. And that's kind of what the Yankees have done. They've stayed one step ahead. They make great moves. Pretty much every guy they've picked up, whether it be, you know, Gio Urshela or DJ LeMahieu or any of these plug-and-plays that they've had to put in there. I'll even count Luke Voigt in there last year with the trade from St. Louis. Oh, huge. They've, all, they've basically all worked out. It's unbelievable. But the way they evaluate, the way they – look into what makes a hitter a good hitter as opposed to not a good hitter. Really impressive, and it really shows you how ahead of the curve they are. And, you know, I didn't think a ton of Brian Cashman, to be honest with you, you know, when I was younger a couple years ago. But the job he has done the last couple of years getting these guys in the fold that some of them, especially like Urshela, nobody probably thought anything about, uh, really, really awesome. And you just can't say enough about how good that front office has done probably since 2017 on. And you mentioned Miguel Andujar before with the production of guys like Torres and LeMahieu. No one has spoken his name, even though that was a relatively <laughs> big blow early in the year, losing a guy like that, a rookie of the year runner-up to the season with a shoulder injury, and no one's spoken his name in months. Uh, Glaber Torres, normally people are known for sophomore slumps. He's turned into an MVP candidate in his own right. He's on pace for 38 home runs around 100 RBIs, and his OPS is north of 900 as a second baseman slash shortstop this season. He's only 22. I think people forget that. Uh, he has still has about 15 years left, 20 years maybe, of his playing career, and he's already doing ridiculous things, ranking among the likes of Alex Rodriguez in terms of OPS in the first couple of years of action. So the Yankees have gotten so many of those contributors. Luke Voigt on pace for around 35 and 100. It's pretty crazy. And Gary Sanchez, a guy, a comeback player of the year candidate behind the plate, 
He had a lost season last year. We knew what he could do with the bat. Now he's going to be a catcher this year with 40 home runs and improved defense. His framing could improve, uh, but that's something that's been a strength of his in the past. So no pass ball troubles this year, a gun of an arm, and he's going to hit 40 home runs. That's a special talent that you don't find every day. So the Yankees are in great shape, and now it's just a matter of what are they willing to part with at the deadline to get that top flight starting pitcher because you know the Yankees will be in this spot come October. They'll be a team to beat, but what are they throwing at Houston when Houston counters with Justin Verlander? And that's really the question for the Yankees right now. How are they willing to part financially, and how are they willing to part prospect-wise? they got to be all in on this year. You don't get too many chances like this to win a World Series. That's just how I view it, and they need to not worry about the farm right now because basically every farmhand that's come up has produced for this team. You're not worried about that at this point. You have a long-term plan. You've got to part with what you got to part with if you're going to get a Bumgarner or, a, dare I say, a Max Scherzer if he becomes available. And, and I think it's interesting, too, because you look at all these guys you know, that have either been with the team or are going to be with the team theoretically in the next couple of years, all the best prospects. And they've, like, yeah, they've all played well, but the problem is, too, I think you have to be more willing to part with them because you might not have anywhere to put them. So... They'd probably be better served going and playing in a uh, Kansas City or, you know, a Chicago White Sox, you know, in a smaller market where they're going to get playing time every day and you're going to be able to get an asset that you can try to win a World Series with. So, I mean, I kind of wanted to ask you this because the name that everyone has pointed to, especially because the Blue Jays were in New York this week, was Marcus Stroman. I mean, do you think that's the guy or do you think they shoot even higher? Because I think it's – the one thing we've learned with Brian Cashman over the years is that anytime you hear a rumor about them getting someone, just ignore it because they're probably going to get somebody else. I mean, look at the Encarnacion trade. There was there wasn't a peep about that, and then it was all of a sudden the Yankees are getting Edwin Encarnacion. If there's one thing I've learned about Brian Cashman the last five years, which you just alluded to, expect the opposite. I I, <laughs> I don't expect Brian <laughs> Cashman to do exactly what I expect. I do have trust in him. I, I expect him to do the right thing. Maybe not as much with the starting pitching because that's been a weakness of his throughout his Yankee career. But I tend to err on the side of trusting Brian Cashman because of all the great moves he's made as opposed to some of them that he's missed. Marcus Stroman is a guy I could easily see in pinstripes. He spoke to New York reporters the other day at the stadium. He was singing his praises for New York. The fact that he's a local kid, he loves the bright lights. He was almost selling himself as a Yankee trade target. I could see that as a move the Yankees could definitely make and not have to give up maybe as much as a guy like Bumgarner or Scherzer, of course, would take the world to get him in pinstripes. But you mentioned the guy. He's not the guy. I I, I think he's a nice addition. I think with the way he's performed this year, you're probably looking at a very good number two option in the playoffs. And he's pitched in the playoffs before and done pretty well. But... He's not a number one, so if you got Stroman and that's going to be your end-all, be-all, you better hope James Paxton is the guy you acquired, and he has not been so far. He's been very inconsistent, and Luis Severino comes back. Those would have to be the two things that would happen if you get Stroman. If those things don't happen, you're probably looking at Stroman and one more guy. So you probably need to make two under-the-radar moves rather than one huge move. So I could see it. I could see Stroman being the guy in the Yankees saying, hey, we're getting Severino back. That would be a very Cashman-type move. And the thing is, too, with the Yankees, I mean, in the playoffs, really theoretically, you need, what, four or five innings tops from your starter? They just turn it over to the Death Star. I mean, it's really easy to to manage that way and, and also get assets that way when you know that, hey, your starter only really needs to get 
realistically, I think they only really need to get 12 outs. And then everything after that is kind of a bonus because you've got, I think, the best bullpen ever constructed out there. And you could just turn to them. Any one of those guys, obviously, it's the playoffs. Everyone will be available. So I don't think it's, it's too much of a concern. Everybody's saying, oh, they need one more. They need one more. I would almost go so far as to say, I don't know if they need one more. I think it's just more of a luxury at this point because I think, especially if Paxton can kind of turn this around, I think they can make do with, with what they have right now. I actually really do. And they're showing right now that they can make do with it. I think it's more of a, as you mentioned, a luxury, an insurance plan, and Strowman would be a great insurance plan. He's posting a three ERA this year. His numbers are up across the board, and the Yankees have shown over the last few weeks they can beat the elite teams in the American League that they need to get by just simply by using their strength, and that's the bullpen. I wouldn't be surprised in a must-win game in the playoffs if the Yankees, dare I say, go Chad Green in the first inning and then back him up with some of the big arms. You count what you have right now, you get two innings out of Tommy Canley. Maybe Adele and Batances is back in the fold by then. You get one inning out of him. You get a couple innings out of Adovino. You get one inning out of Chapman, one out of Britain. You're basically covering an entire game. And you have no excuse not to do that in the playoffs because you have off days built into the playoffs. So yeah. you don't have to worry about overusing these guys. If these bullpen arms are healthy come October, even if Batantis isn't in the fold, Chad Green has found his own, maybe I wouldn't go as far to say Holder will we find his, himself by then because right now he's in AAA and he's pitched himself into that. But a guy like Nestor Cortez has been very good this year, crafty lefty, a situational guy. Hap and CeCe maybe guys that are in the bullpen at that point because you're not trusting them with high leverage starts. That is a stacked bullpen of lefties, righties, power arms, crafty arms, and some of the best relievers in baseball. So, again, if you're in the postseason, as you said, go with your strength. You have no excuse not to. Unless they're getting a huge starting pitcher at the deadline, you got to go with your strength in October, and that may mean a couple bullpen games here and there. Well, I mean, the Yankees basically did that in the 2017 wildcard game. Severino didn't have it. I think he got one out, and then they just they went to Chad Green. And it was almost the same as having an opener because Severino only threw to, I think, four batters in that game. So, yeah, you could totally do that. And, again, it's just such a great problem to have as well. It's like, wow, the bullpen's so good. Do we need a starter? I don't know. So you'd much rather have that issue than, than some of the issues other even contenders have. So that's really good, I think, from the Yankees' point of view. And, and also, like, you talked about Jonathan Holder. Well, if he comes back, that's a bonus. And if Luis Severino comes back, that's a bonus. So there's a lot of bonuses for the Yankees right now on top of what's already been a team that's several games ahead in the division and looks to be all indications are that they are on the up and up. And, and that's, that's good to see from them. And the only question mark I have in the playoffs, and, and this is probably terrible to say because he's had a really good year, is Aaron Boone. I, you know, I, I do wonder how he's going to manage things. And just the in-game decision-making, I mean, I don't worry about any of that motivation stuff because I don't really think it matters with, with adults who play 162 games a season. But I do worry about in-game management. Will he pull starters quick enough? Because that was the problem last year against Boston. He didn't really have a quick enough trigger. And things sort of snowballed on them and got out of control, and then they were they were out of some of those games. So I do worry about that a little bit. But other than that, I really believe the Yankees are probably the best team in baseball. Dodgers probably give them a run, but if I were to make a pick right now, I picked them in the preseason, I would go, I would go with the Yankees. I would too, and Aaron Boone has proven himself as a manager of the year candidate. He hasn't drawn as much attention to himself this year, and of course that happens when you're winning a little bit more, but 
I don't see him pulling a Lance Lynn move in the third inning like he did last year. I think he knows a little bit better that you need to use your strength in those games. And if he does, you know, he'll be he'll be the whipping boy again with the fan base. So uh, I think he knows better, and the Yankees know better as an organization about uh, the tactical plan to get the job done this postseason, and the bullpen is probably the best route to get that done. So final few minutes here. Let's go through these all-star ballots and, and pick our guys, Jimmy. So right now, LeMahieu has increased his lead over Tommy LaSella to 6.6%. So it seems like LeMahieu is kind of coasting to that second base nod, as we expected. A little bit of a popularity contest in the outfield, as Aaron Judge is making a play right now for Brantley's third spot. So Popularity contest? No, never. <laughs> there, there are some flaws in the system, as we know. Judge has only played about 25 games this year, and he might start in left field or right field. Um, Freddie Freeman actually has a lead over Josh Bell right now at first base by 2.3%, so that'll be a neck-and-neck neck race. Uh, Cattell Marte over Ozzie Albies by 5.7%, and Christian Yelich has a 1.3% lead over Cody Ballinger for the top position rankings. They both will start, obviously. And Ronald Acuna and Charlie Blackman are battling for that last outfield spot. So let's start there. Outfield in the National League. We know Yelich and Bellinger are there. I'm going Blackman for that last spot. I think he's had a sensational year. I know it's at Coors Field, but I think he's been a really cool story. Acuna's very good, and he'll be in the All-Star game. He'll play. I like Blackman for that final spot. What about you? So I've got the same top two you have, obviously, Yelich and Bellinger. I think Bellinger's the MVP of the National League if it ends right now. Uh, the third guy I voted for the first time, and I think I'll actually stick with him, is uh, Jock Peterson on the Dodgers. He's had a great year. They've hit him some leadoff. They moved him around a little bit. He's been a really good hitter. Had an OPS over 1,000 last time I checked. So I'm actually going to go with him. You can really go with with just about any of these guys. Blackman is always having a great year. Acuna is going to be in all-star games for years to come. Uh, and Nick Markakis is a guy I love watching, too, with the Braves. He just hits and hits and hits. But I'm actually going to vote for Jack Peterson. A little bit of a dark, uh, dark horse candidate, but I'm going, to, I'm going to go with him. Interesting under-the-radar pick there, Jack Peterson. So Jimmy rounds out his outfield. So we both have Yelich and Bellinger, of course. Those are the two front runners for the National League MVP. And I'm going Charlie Blackman. He is going Jock Peterson. Catcher in the National League is a two-man race right now. Yasmani Grandal and over with the Cubs, Wilson Contreras. I had Contreras on my ballot, and a lot of people are going Grandal too. So I'm interested in your thoughts there. I, I think Contreras has just had a really fabulous year for the Cubs. Yeah, um, I'm gonna go. I'm also gonna go with Contreras. Um, Grandal has a little bit of an advantage defensively. Right. Uh, that's the one area Contreras hasn't come through. But to me, it's sort of like when you look at Gary Sanchez as well, because they they both have pretty similar numbers, more or less. Contreras' OPS is a little higher. Sanchez has a little more pop. But I'll go with Contreras. 981 OPS to Grandal's 926. Um, Grandal is going to make the All-Star game, no doubt in my mind, but I think uh, Contreras is just a tick better, but I find this fascinating. So Contreras is one, Grandal is two. How about Brian McCann at third? That's unbelievable to me. He's having just a great resurgent year for Atlanta. He's had an amazing year. It seems he's hitting a home run every other night, and it seemed Brian McCann was done for with his production the last couple of years. Maybe he's kind of refound that stroke that he lost a little bit when he was with the Yankees and then moving over to the Houston Astros winning a World Series there, but still wasn't a great productive catcher that he was used to being earlier in his career. McCann is a dark horse candidate. Wouldn't be surprised if he was able to 
get a maybe a backup spot, a reserve spot, I wouldn't be surprised at all. Contreras is currently leading that voting, so a lot of people are seeing eye-to-eye with that, and McCann is in second place, so, so that's interesting. That's something to monitor. Gary Sanchez and the AL, I think we both can agree on. Yeah, no, no doubt in my mind for that one. I initially voted for Christian Vasquez. That was about a month ago. Um, it was only a phase, um, but Gary Sanchez, is, <laughs> no Gary Sanchez is the best hitter here. I forgive you. Uh, and then, uh, <laughs> thank you. And then uh, I'd probably go, if I were to rank him, I'd probably go Sanchez, Chirinos, McCann. One, two, three. That is very fair. I'd probably go that way too. McCann, I think the White Sox fans are getting to the ballots a bit more. He's in second place right now, so we'll see how that shakes out. Sanchez has a sizable lead for first place, and rightfully so. First base, AL, it's right now a two-man race, Carlos Santana and Luke Voigt. Santana's numbers have surprised me. They've actually eclipsed Voigt's over the last couple of weeks. I have a little Yankee bias. I think Voigt's been phenomenal. I'd love to see him in the game. I think he'll be in the home run derby too. But right now, I probably would go Carlos Santana. He's had an extremely good year. I would go with Santana as well. Higher OPS, uh, not as many home runs. He's more of a doubles hitter. But, you know, it's fair to wonder with with the year the Indians are having, uh, where they would be without Carlos Santana right now. 12 home runs, 40 driven in, 912 OPS. Um, First base, unlike the National League, it's not exactly stacked per se. Um, The NL is insanely deep. Pete Alonso didn't even make the last three, but... Um, we'll get into that a little later, but uh, yeah, you know, I'm going to go with Santana as well. I voted for him the, the first time too, so I, I go with, I, I'll stick with him. And I think Voight will probably make it as a reserve, so uh, the Yankees will get some representation there. You go over to the National League where there are a lot of worthy candidates. I personally think, as you probably do, Pete Alonso should have been in this uh, final position player vote over Anthony Rizzo this year. I think he's been better than Rizzo. Bell and Freeman both deserve to be there. I love Freeman as a player, and he currently ranks first, but I would go Josh Bell. I think he's been phenomenal. He really has. Um, I'm going to go – I'm actually going to go with the consensus here. I'm going to take Freeman. Um, He's been really good defensively. Josh Bell's defensive metrics are not great. That's the one thing that's that's really held him back. But over 1,000 OPS, he's going to be, I think, an MVP candidate, uh, as is Freddie Freeman. But, you know, Freddie's really been the best hitter in that lineup. Uh, just super consistent. Um, by, a, by a hair, I would say Freddie Freeman. Although Josh Bell, very worthy case. He's going to be an all-star. It's just the nature of this position in the National League this year where I'd say there's probably five guys in the National League that you could realistically vote for as an all-star and you'd be justified in doing so. National League first base has been stacked for a while. And this year it gained Pete Alonso and it gained Josh Bell as formidable candidates, elite players, and you're not even counting a guy like Paul Goldschmidt who's having a down year as one of those elite first basemen. So it's a very interesting race there. A lot, a lot of worthy candidates. Second base AL, we both said it before, DJ LeMahieu. He's had a terrific year, probably an MVP candidate now for the Yankees. So let's move on to NL second base. Marte Albies Moustakis. I think I went uh, Moustakis as kind of a dark horse initially. But Marte currently has the lead. I think Marte has the best numbers, so I think I'm going with Marte over the D-backs. Yeah, that, that's a tough one. Um, they're pretty much even. Marte, a higher average. Um, OPS is the main one I look at. Uh, Marte's leading by 10 points, which is really not that much. That can change in a couple of days. I'm going to take I'm gonna take Moustakas. Um, hmm. Solid defensively. You know, he's back at third now for Milwaukee. Um Ball flies out in Arizona quite a bit as well, but he he is having a breakout year. Uh, he'll be at the All-Star game as well. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna take Mike Moustakas. He's having a really solid year. Um, he's not far off in the categories he is off. Uh, Marte is not far. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take Moustakas. Uh, I could kind of go either way on this one. though, not gonna lie to you. Third base, AL, Bregman, Dozier, Urshela. Urshela should not be there. He's been a great story for the Yankees this year. <laughs> He's not better than Matt Chapman or Rafael Devers, for that matter. Uh, Urshela's third, though, so it's not really going to hurt anyone here. Uh, Dozier in second. I think Alex Bregman's the pick. It, he has not as high of the – you know, the numbers that pop out at you when you first look yeah, at the sure. player's slash line, Dozier probably beats him in that. But Bregman does have the 22 bombs, and his OPS is very high. His defense is much better than anyone on that list. So I'm going Alex Bregman. So this is this is actually my uh, my dark horse pick here. I voted for him the first time. Um, I've been in love with Hunter Dozier this season. He's a really, really good player on a, a lineup that he hasn't had a lot of protection in. I, I think you have to factor that in as well. And his numbers are better than Bregman. So I'm actually going to go with Hunter Dozier. Um, he's on a bad team. Um um, I'll be the first person to say that. Um, but he has had to produce in that lineup because if he doesn't, then it's one of those things where who else is going to do it? And he, he's done that. So he's been really impressive to me. He stood out. Um, and I, I go with Hunter Dozier. Interesting. And everyone needs a representative. So even Kansas City needs one. So that could be their guy. Yeah, so he'll probably make it Bre- that Bregman has a higher war right now, but Dozier does have him beat in OPS. You're right. And OPS plus. So uh, Dozier is having a better year offensively at the very least. And that's what seems to be kind of a calling card for some of these all-stars as to whether they make it. How are they doing OPS-wise? How are they doing offensively? NL, third base, Arenado, Donaldson, Bryant. It's a good race. Arenado's having another terrific year, so he continues to represent the National League. I'm going to stick with Arenado. I'm not going to get cute here. Yeah, no, me neither. Uh, He's the best third baseman in the game, uh, either league. Defensively, offensively, whole package, um, and he's done it offensively. And you, you added the defensive numbers; he just blows everybody out of the water. Brian is having a bounce back year, like you said, but I, I think this is there are a handful of no-brainers on here, and I think this is one of them. I go with Arenado. Shortstop, AL: Jorge Polanco, Glaber Torres, Carlos Correa. Correa's missed time. If he didn't miss the time, I think he would have been the pick here because his numbers are very, very good. But Torres's numbers have had a surge. Late in the first half, they've been very consistent, but now he's above a 900 OPS. He's right there, but even a guy like Xander Bogarts isn't in this list, and he's probably better than Torres. Shortstop in the AL is very deep. Polanco's having the best year, though, so I think I'm going Jorge Polanco. Maybe not defensively, but he does have the offensive numbers when you stack these up side by side. Yeah, I mean, he's probably been the best hitter in that Twins lineup, one of the best teams in baseball. Uh, and I'm a bit surprised. I mean, they're pretty underrepresented here. I mean, other than Cruz and mm. Rosario and Polanco, I mean, and T.J. Crone, who we missed, but he's not going to win at first base. Um, they're pretty underrepresented for a team that's as good as they are. So uh, I'm going to give Jorge Polanco the nod here. Um, like you said with Correa, missed some time. Those numbers would probably be better. But even then, Polanco's still got a higher OPS. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vote for Jorge Polanco. NL Baez, Story, Swanson. Baez and Story, very close numbers-wise. I think I'm going Javi Baez here. Story might have a little bit of an edge, but uh, and I don't love to play the course field card because we've seen that with LeMahieu and all that stuff, but Story's OPS maybe by 20, 30 points, and he's in a hitter's advantage. So I think I'm going Javi Baez. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about this one. This is, I've gone back and forth. 
on this, but um, I'm going to go Trevor Story. Uh, higher OPS. Um, we saw this year the course field card. If you know how to hit, you can you can hit anywhere. Uh, and Trevor Story has shown and, and demonstrated that he's known how to hit. Um, I love Javi Baez as much as anyone. He's maybe the smartest player I've ever seen. Um, but Trevor's story, I think, out of these three, Swanson's kind of the write-off here, but I think story out of these three, and it's really just him and Baez, uh, story's having the better year. So I'm going to give him the nod to start. We already did National League outfield, and good for you with the with the story pick. It, honestly, I probably should stick to my guns there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let's go AL outfield to finish this off before we wrap the show. You have your givens right now in Trout and uh, I'm not sure. Do you think Springer's a given? Because he's number two right now, but he's missed time too. Do you think Springer's yeah, a, think, yeah. he's a lock? I, yeah, I, he probably is just because his numbers are still absurd despite the fact that, he's, that he missed so much time. And I think I might go to Astros here in the outfield. Brantley's had a great year. If, you're, if not for LeMahieu in the AL, he's probably being looked at as the best signing. Uh, I'm going Brantley for my third spot. All due respect to Aaron Judge, who hasn't played this year much. Um, <laughs> let's go Michael Brantley to hold <laughs> on to the third spot. Um, so if you thought I went off the deep end in the National League with the outfield, um, so I'm going with the same top two, Sprout, uh, Sprout, Trout <laughs> and Springer. Combine the two names there. Uh, <laughs> the third guy I voted for, I believe, the first time, I don't have my original ballot in front of me. I believe I voted for Austin Meadows. But he's falling off a little bit, so I'm going to go with another wild card pick here, a guy I love. He's having a great year. Joey Gallo, 1064 OPS, 17 dingers. He's hitting 270. I was waiting for you to say that, yeah. Yeah. He is having a great year. Yeah, he really is. Um, I'm going to go with Gallo. I'm going to stick with Gallo. Um, I Actually, no, that was what I did the first time. I went Trout, Gallo, and Meadows. Um, Springer has gotten hot, so you have to put Springer in there now. But I'm going to go... I'm just going to go straight top three in OPS. Trout, Gallo, and, uh, and George Springer. So those are, those those would be my three. I know I had, for the outfield, I went with four givens and then two wild card picks, but I really think Gallo is having one of the three best years out of anybody on this ballot that I'm looking at right now. I like it. I, I, I like the pick. So <laughs> those are our all-star ballots, and if you want to go and vote, you only have a couple hours to do so, and we'll try to get this up right away so it's still within that frame. But – it will still be on the record here. MLB.com forward slash vote is how you can vote for those players. And then the managers will pick the final players, whether it be bullpen or reserves. So those are all-star uh, starters. And in a couple weeks' time, they will take the field in Cleveland. Yankees, Mets, all-star game, plenty to cover today. And we got to most of what we wanted to get to. So, Jimmy, thanks for taking the time, man. All right, thank you, man. Have a uh, have a great rest of your day. Uh, I'll see you tomorrow. Don't knock me out. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, I'll try not to. No promises. <laughs> He's Jimmy Sullivan. I'm Emmanuel Barbari. See you next time. Uh, next week, every week, WFUV Sports.